0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Luke 2, verse 21. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from... And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for this wonderful word, Father, that we've read many, many times. I presume most of us have been over these verses many times. And Father, we so thank you and praise you for the great encouragement that we see in these verses. Father, we so thank you, O oh Lord, for uh, recording these verses for us, for our edification, and even for our salvation. And O oh Father, we pray that you'd be pleased to teach us from your word this morning. You'd be pleased to meet us in our hearts through your word as we seek to understand these things and that. Father, you would help us to apply what we learn, Father, in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Well, we've been uh, approaching the season of Advent a little differently this year. We've been approaching it through the songs, and and we come this morning to the fourth message of Advent already, which is really... uh, Hard to believe It doesn't seem like it was just Thanksgiving, and here we are the fourth, you know the fourth Sunday, if we're, we're, if we're not getting ready for next Sunday yet, well we best get started, I suppose. Huh? But um, here we are in the fourth um, Sunday. And an argument, argument could be made that there are five songs in, in this uh, narrative. Some would include uh, Elizabeth's wording, uh, Elizabeth's words as a song. but I've chosen to go with the historical and traditional uh, four-song parsing, if you will, because I've been using these names, uh, these Latin names. Uh, we come this morning to the nunc de menis, which some of us may be familiar with. And um, one of the reasons I've been wanting to point to this is because we're pointing back to church history, and it's a reminder that we stand in a long line of what God is doing and what God is building. And it's really helpful, especially helpful for our children uh, to hear this, that Um, We're not the only generation who has pilgrimaged through this uh, world. Uh, Many have gone before us. And the nunc of course, is Latin. It's a Latin phrase. It simply means, now let us thou depart. And um, the the song, if you will, or canticle, it's been used as a canticle. A canticle is just simply a song uh, that's derived from verses of Scripture, the Psalms being being, uh, exempted. But from various verses of Scripture, uh, it's a song that is meant to be chanted or recited or even sung. And um, these words have been used as an evening canticle uh, all the way back to, I think, the third or fourth century. It's been used by the church in the East, the church in the West, and even used in Protestant churches such as the Anglican Church and the Episcopal Church. And uh, some of you are very fond of J.C. Ryle that name means a lot to you. J.C. Ryle was an Anglican minister, Um, would have been familiar with these things. So I like to bring this up because it connects us, if you will. And um, I have a a version, this is from, I forget what hymnal this is out of, uh, but it's out of um, one of the Protestant hymnals, I believe. And it's it's entitled, Lord, now let us thy servant depart, which is one of the titles given to the nunc de menace. Another title you might find it if you're looking in hymnals or you're looking it up on the internet is the Song of Simeon. It's known as that as well. But it goes like this. Lord, now let us thou servant, thy servant depart in peace. I botched that all up. Let me try that again. Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace. Too many thousand eyes. all oh, well. According to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles, and to be the glory of thy people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning and now as ever shall be, world without end. And some of you will recognize the glory of Patry has been put at the end of it, you know, uh, and that's pretty common, actually. Uh, So, uh, there, I just share with you words that have been, you know, they've been uh, used devotionally by our fathers and mothers in the faith uh, for many centuries. Now, with this introduction in mind, let's go through these verses. There's a lot here that needs explanation. Uh, Starting with verse 21, there we see eight days, uh, at the end of the eighth day, we find Jesus being circumcised. He's given the name Jesus Um, the name that that Gabriel had given before he was conceived in Mary's womb. In verse 22, when the time came for Mary's purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord to offer sacrifices according to what is said in the law of the Lord. Now, what is going on here? Well, the, the more we know about circumcision, actually, the more of a shock factor we're going to have. And the more we learn about the purification rites, the more of a shock factor we're going to have. Um, Circumcision was, uh, as as probably most of us uh, will recall, is a a uh, sign of the uh, of the covenant, if you will, in the old administration of the covenant of grace, it's given to um, Abraham in Genesis 17. It's prescribed by Moses. And what is the meaning of circumcision? Well, it's like baptism. It's it's got a wide range of meaning, and in fact, it's a parallel of baptism. Circumcision is a cutting off of sin, if you will. Uh, circumcision is uh, entrance into the covenant, if you will. Uh, circumcision is um, also a uh, it's emblematic of conversion the Old Testament prophets call people to circumcise their hearts what's that mean that means be converted or that means reconvert if you will Um, and in other passages we find the Lord promising to circumcise hearts and what's that emblematic of it's emblematic of regeneration it's emblematic of the work of the Holy Spirit changing our hearts And as we listen to that list, we say, well, wow, that sounds like baptism. That's exactly the point. Uh, Circumcision is the Old Testament rite. After the crucifixion of Jesus, a bloody sacrament is no longer longer appropriate, Um, and it gives way to baptism. Uh, Jesus makes the connection himself. He says that I have a baptism to be baptized with. And what is he referring to? He's referring to the cross. And also, we see here with the circumcision, and we're going to get to that in a minute, that this circumcision looks forward to Christ's shedding of blood on the cross. Now, the shock factor is, why why would Jesus submit himself to this bloody sacrament that has really impregnated in it the idea of putting off sin? He has no sin to put off, does he? And furthermore, it's compounded when we get to verse 22 and we say, when the time came for their purification. Well, whose purification? Some, you notice the pronoun, or the, notice that the noun there is their. Okay, their purification. Who is actually being discussed here? Some have answered that it's Joseph and Mary. Um, but as Calvin rightfully says, it cannot be Joseph because there is no prescription for The husband or for the father uh, in these purification rites. And furthermore, there's no mention of a sacrifice being offered for Joseph. Okay, then who's left? It's Mary and Jesus. Now, this should be creating some tension. What would the Holy One and sinless One of Israel be doing submitting and surrendering himself to a rite of purification? And it's the same tension that we experience when we read of Jesus coming to John the Baptist to be to be baptized, isn't it? In fact, John the Baptist even says, whoa, wait a second. As Jesus shows up, and John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. And what does John what does John say? He says, This isn't right. I, I shouldn't be baptizing you, you should be baptizing me. And how does Jesus answer that? He says, this is fitting and fulfilling righteousness. Now, what's going on here? We do our best not to explain this away because what this actually does is takes us right into the very heart of the gospel. It takes us right into the heart of the gospel. The apostle Paul puts it this way. You don't need to turn to these passages. Just listen carefully to them. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, Paul says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or Galatians 4.4, four. 4. And I won't say a whole lot about this because we're going to be studying Galatians next year. Next year sounds so far away, doesn't it? Next year we're going to study Galatians, um, and we'll be looking at this verse, but Galatians 4.4, 4. but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now what's going on here? What's going on here is our sinless Savior is identifying with us. He's identifying with sinners. He has no sin to repent of, which is just amazing. But he has come to fulfill all righteousness. God has stepped. That's the wonder of Christmas. Um, God has stepped out of time, space, and history in order to come in the person of Jesus, in order to walk for 30-plus years in complete fidelity to his law. And this is fitting to fulfill all righteousness, that he would submit himself to uh, circumcision, that he would submit himself to this purification rite. When a woman gave birth to a male child, according to Old Testament law, she was unclean for seven days. And then she was to abstain from everything that was holy for another 33 days. So this time of purification is a time of 40 days. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke refers to this purification as their purification. We see the great lengths that Jesus has gone to, uh, surrendering and submitting himself to these purification rites when he is all along without spot or without blemish. Amen. He's a perfect Savior. And before we move on for this, from this, you know, as Calvin brings out, is this really is a graphic illustration of Original sin, isn't it? It's a graphic illustration that we are born in sin from day one, aren't we? When you think about it, when, when a male child is born, uh, the, the mother is unclean for seven days and then has to walk for another 33 days, abstaining from all that is holy. What is that a graphic picture of? It's a graphic picture of this original sin. It's a graphic picture of the fact we've been born in sin, It's a graphic picture of our central problem. But as Calvin goes on to say after that, we also see impregnated in this wonderful passage, verses 21 through 24, we see impregnated in the problem, we see the gracious remedy, don't we? Impregnated in the problem, we see the gracious Savior. Impregnated in the problem, we see Christ right there in the middle of it, don't we? He's come to save us from our sins. Uh, So these verses take us very deeply into the very heart of the gospel. I won't say much about um, the um, first who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. We're going to get to that when we study Exodus, especially when we study the Passover. Uh, In verse 24, we have a sacrifice being offered. A pair of turtle doves, two young pigeons. This was the sacrifice for those uh, in low estate, as the old preachers used to say, those who are in low economic uh, conditions, if you will, in other words, for the poor, um, there were uh, there's a sacrifice there. It's a burnt offering and a sin offering to be offered in verse 24. And in verses 25 through 38, we have two witnesses appearing. Uh, the first one is Simeon. If you look at verse 25 there, you see that uh, here's a man whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, notice how he's described. He's described as one who's righteous and devout. And we might think to ourselves, well, that was the explanation we got of Zechariah, wasn't it? Yeah, in part. If you look back to chapter 1 and verse 6, you see there that both Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous before God, and they walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But in addition to this, we find Simeon to be one who is waiting. He's very excitedly waiting the consolation of Israel. And that's what um, prompted me to choose Psalm 130, our call to worship this morning because there the, the psalmist is in that posture of waiting as a watchman in the night, you know, waiting. And here we find Simeon. He is waiting. What is he waiting for? The consolation of Israel. What is that? Well, the rest of our text is going to flesh that out. But um, here's a definition from Webster's, and this is his um, 1911 edition. Um, I've quoted to you before from, I think, the my study, I think, my copy is like an 1824 edition. And these, these definitions, this 1911 edition is in that accordance software that, that I just purchased. Um, um, and it's, it's real, but just listen to this definition. He writes the consolation is the act of consoling, the state of being consoled, alleviation of misery, or the alleviation of distress of mind. Um, refreshment of spirit, comfort, that which consoles or comforts the spirit. And I, I invite you to just to sometime, don't do it now, but sometime Google consolation and see what definition you get now and compare it to what you've just heard. And you'll see um, there's a lot to be said about turning back to these uh, to these dictionaries. So we have this act of consoling Simeon is waiting for this consolation what is this consolation well we're going to get to that here in a few minutes in verse 26 well before we get to verse 26 one other detail notice that the Holy Spirit is upon Simeon and here we're seeing the work of the Holy Spirit we're seeing it often aren't we Uh, we're seeing the work of the Holy Spirit we've seen the work of the Holy Spirit in John the Baptist. We see the work of the Holy Spirit in Elizabeth. We've seen it in Mary, of course, in Jesus. We're seeing it in Zechariah as he prophesies. Here we're seeing the work of the Holy Spirit in Simeon. And in verse 26, it's revealed to Simeon that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now imagine that. At this time, there's a high expectation um, of the Messiah coming during this time. There's no question But most people, most people assumed that what that looked like was the Messiah would come and run Rome out and reestablish Israel as uh, the Davidic kingdom that it once was, as a superpower that it once was under David and under Solomon. So they were arguably looking at this um, in political terms. And when we hear that, we might be inclined to say, you know, not a whole lot has changed, has it? It, it re, I mean, we could stop and make application now because there are so many people in the evangelical church that profess faith, but when you talk with them, you can't hardly get a word in about Jesus because everything's about the Republican Party, or everything's about Republican Party, uh, politics, or everything's about the talking current talking points on Fox News. And sometimes, after a while, you got to wonder when are we when are we going to get around to Jesus? And this is, I think. Um, when we read these passages and we see all this, we, we see that a lot of things haven't changed. Uh, this was the case uh, in ancient times. And here Simeon is. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. It's been promised to him that he would see the Lord's Christ before he passes away. And in verse 27, Simeon is led by the Holy Spirit into the temple at just the right time where he would rendezvous with Jesus. And in verse 28, take a good look at that verse. In verse 28, he took up Jesus in his arms and he blessed God. And in verse 29, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Why do I say take a good look at verse 28? Because in verse 28, we see it's only by the work of the Holy Spirit that we can see Jesus. That's the first thing. But we also graphically see what it means to receive Jesus, don't we? He literally takes Jesus in his arms. Now, he literally does that. But it's indicative of where his heart is, isn't it? I mean, his, his arms are following after his heart. His, follow, art is, his heart is following after his eyes, which have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. And you, you, you see, that's just a graphic illustration of what it means to receive Christ, and we have to wonder, I mean, it's already been out. I wasn't going to say much about it, but you've really got to wonder if we're considering canceling church on, on Christmas. you really got to wonder where we're at in all of this. Has Christ really got our hearts? I mean, what posture as Christ's church, those who have been redeemed by his blood on the cross, what posture should we have on Christmas morning but a, a excitement about coming in and worshiping him? What could possibly have a hold of our hearts so hard that we would even contemplate for a moment doing anything else? Quite frankly, I will tell you, I am excited and I wish that Christmas was on Sunday every year. Me and Jim just talked about that before the service. He goes, yeah, let's make it the third Sunday of every December. It doesn't quite work that way, though, does it? But you look at verse 28 and you see what it means really to receive Christ. It's not an empty profession, nor is it um, talking points on Fox News. Verse 28, receiving Christ, receiving him in your arms, the arms of your heart, and saying, and, and notice the resolve that that, that's, that Simeon has in verse 29. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. You know, um, Simeon. <laughs> What basically Simeon is saying here, he says, I can die comfortably now, Lord. I can die in peace now because my eyes have seen, verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation. That's the consolation of Israel. And it's also the consolation of the world. We have something here that's going on that you don't see very often. He says in verse 31. Uh, well, for the sake of context, verse twenty-nine. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Does anyone see anything shocking about verse thirty-one, verse thirty-two rather, verse thirty-two? What's shocking is Gentiles are first. We never get to go first, do we? We're first in this verse. And this is one of Luke's themes, if you will. It's one of Luke's distinctives, is Luke is reaching out to the outcast. You know, those gypsies out in the field who are shepherding their their sheep. You remember that discussion. Uh, The shepherds, they're outcasts. The Gentiles, they're outcasts. Notice that they're mentioned first. This is very rare, actually. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. That is the song of Simeon, if you will. Um, And it has strengthened our fathers and mothers throughout the centuries, and it can strengthen us as well as we receive it by faith. Amen? I mean, think about it, especially the implications it has for um, approaching death. You know, think about the implications it has. Now, Now you're letting your servant depart in peace. You know, one of the things uh, with my friend Robin, who I've told you so much about, and she wouldn't mind a, a sh- sharing with you, you know, I'm inclined to believe that Robin has come to saving faith. And one of the reasons I'm inclined to believe that is not just because of her profession. She's professing faith, of course. And that, um, that is something that is remarkable in and of itself. But one of the marks is that Robin has never been afraid throughout the whole course of this. When I found her, um, when, when I first found her, and she was as gray as a skin color could possibly be, she wasn't afraid then, and she's never been afraid at any point in this about what would happen to her. And I've brought that up to her a couple of times. I says, Robin, you know, you're amazingly calm about how this could end. Um, are you are you nervous? Are you scared? And her response every time has been this. Tammy, I think you maybe have heard it a couple of times. No, uh, because Jesus, Jesus You know, I forget exactly how she's put it, but Jesus is watching over me. And that is really just absolutely amazing, is it not? Um, Here Simeon says, oh, now I may depart in peace according to your word. My eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, for glory to the people of Israel. And notice that Mary and Joseph marvel about what is said. And in verse 34, Simeon blesses them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Now, what exactly is going on with that phrase in verse 34? This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many. There are a couple of ways. There's some who interpret these as uh, all positive that it's positive, and what's meant by the fall and the rising uh, would be what happens to Peter, for example. Peter falls, denies Jesus three times, and then, of course, when he's re- when when he is um, reconciled by Jesus, he rises. And that's one interpretation of this. I don't think it's the best inter- interpretation of this. I think uh, it's all true. Peter does fall. Peter does rise. But the better interpretation of this is that Um, Jesus is going to cause the falling and he is going to cause the rising uh, of many in Israel. Now, how does that work? Of course, um, some are going to receive Jesus, aren't they? Some are going to receive Jesus while others are going to reject him. And um, this is really in fulfilling of what uh, Jesus says. If you you look at chapter 20, I was originally going to go into some of these verses, but I don't think we have time this morning But if you look at Luke 20, um, let's just look at verse 17. I was going to take you through all the context of this, but Jesus is speaking to his opponents. And notice what he says. He looks directly at them in verse 17, Luke 20, verse 17. And he says, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And Jesus is being his own interpreter here. Uh, Jesus is interpreting for us what is being meant by Simeon's words uh, to his mother. There's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. You know, we can't sit on the fence. Um, We're going to rise or we're going to fall. It's going to be one or it's going to be the other, you know. There's just no, uh, there's no middle ground here. And uh, the world all the time is trying to establish this middle. You know, I'm on the fence. now. there is no fence. Uh, there just simply is no fence. It's, it's in or it's out. Um, and if you look at this last line here in verse 34, for a sign that is opposed, you know, again, you know, I've commented on Calvin a couple of times. I, I comment him again. He, he really spent some time on this. And so wonderfully and pastorally develops this of what a grace this is to Mary. Imagine being uh, Mary and she's given all these promises by Gabriel. Now she's getting these promises by um, Simeon, uh, very clearly inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Her son is the Messiah. What kind of reception are you going to expect him to have? You're going to expect him to have a favorable reception. Uh, reception, especially by the religious uh, the the religious uh, um, establishment, would you not? And imagine when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, he's being rejected everywhere. And in a very short period of time, they're seeking to destroy him because they're claiming he's a false teacher and a blasphemer. And ultimately, he will be charged for blasphemy by them. Imagine what a trial that would be. Uh, and we certainly know that Uh, It was a trial for Mary, as you read through the Gospels. um, It certainly is a trial for her. But here, God is telling her, listen, he is going to be opposed. He is going to have opposition. Um, What a mercy that is to her. And in verse 35, we're told that a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Traditionally, that's been... Uh, understood as, um, you know, she experiences that as she watches Jesus be crucified. Um, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there lies the problem. The thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Um, what happens as Jesus comes into the Holy Land and begins to preach? Hearts become revealed You know, we have a lot of things in our hearts, don't we, that we really don't want no one to know about. And especially imagine if you're parading around trying to be much holier than you are. The last thing that you want is all of this sin to be brought out into the floor. And that's really the problem. You know, what does Jesus say in John's gospel? You don't need to turn there, but I'll turn there and read it for you because there's a. I just Just thought of a verse just now that really um, sums it up, and my memory is really not so good. Jesus says in in chapter 3, verse 19, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. See, that's really truly what's going on is Jesus embarks on his ministry. And we have a choice. What is the choice that we have? The choice that we have either is to succumb to the message or kill the messenger, isn't it? And, of course, what will they ultimately choose? They'll ultimately choose to kill the messenger. Now, in verse 36, there's so much more that can be said about all that. But in verse 36, we find uh, the prophetess Anna. Here's our second witness, if you will. She's the daughter of Fenuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. Now, you'll lo- notice the ESV has a footnote that says it could be translated or as a widow for 84 years. So she's either 84 years old or she's well over the century mark, <laughs> one or the other. Uh, The point here is she has lived a very long time, and most of that time has been given in worshiping, fasting, and praying in the temple night and day. So here we see another uh, example, another witness of, of great devotion, if you will. And in verse 38, coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So we have the witness of Simeon, and we have the witness of Anna. In verse 39, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, in terms of application, just a couple of points, and I'll move to close. And The first is that... Um, Very clearly, the Messianic Age has arrived, the long-awaited Messianic Age. And think about it. I think sometimes we have to really forcefully put our minds to thinking about this. The Messianic Age is promised in Genesis 3.15. You think about how many centuries go by before it finally comes to fruition. And here in this passage, the Messianic Age has come with the coming of Jesus The messianic age has come, and Jesus has come not just to bring consolation to Israel, but he's come to bring consolation to the world. And here we are. You know, I always like to point to that. Here we are 6,000 miles away, uh, 2,000 years nearly removed from this, and, and our hearts are being consoled and comforted this morning, aren't they? Jesus really did come, and he really did. He came for us, you know. I mean, think about this. Let's just stop for just a minute and think about that. He came for me. Have you ever said that to yourself? Have you ever said, Lord, did you You came for me? And that's just astounding, isn't it? You came for me. The second point that I want to make is that God's law still matters. You know, one of the big themes running through all this is the is could be summarized by the word piety. And I have a definition somewhere here that I want to share with you in regards to piety. Um, I think I put a definition on my notes here. Yeah, here it is. Piety, you know, you'll hear this. We don't hear this word all the time in our, uh, you know, in common discussion. But again, looking at Webster's 1911, and I've kind of adopted this from his um, definition. Piety is veneration or reverence of God and love of his character. Um, So what do we mean by veneration? Veneration is uh, respect that's mingled with awe. It's like a respect that's um, mingled with this this sensation of awe, if you will. So we could put it this way. veneration, respect mingled with awe or reverence of God and love of his character, love, obedience to his will and earnest devotion to his service, his piety. When you look at verse 39, you see it summarized when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. Mary and Joseph do everything according to the law of the Lord. And of course, this is implied with Anna, isn't it? And we're told explicitly that this is the case with Zechariah. And my point is that God's law still matters. Christ comes and um, grace comes, but it doesn't come to replace God's law, if you will. Um, It doesn't come to, to take God's law away. God's law still matters. In fact, God's law shows us how we're to live as those who have been redeemed by God's grace, right? Does that make sense? So um, our text has a wonderful view of piety. One last sentence. Piety is respect and awe. This is what I was looking for. Piety is respect and awe that ebb and flow from loving God and obeying his every desire. Let me read that again. Piety is respect and awe that ebb and flow from loving God and obeying his every desire. Piety is what results from receiving Christ Jesus. Think again of verse twenty-eight, where um, Simeon is holding on to Jesus, and he says, "Lord, now I may depart; I may depart in peace." You know, obviously, we can't reach out and we can't reach out and physically hold Jesus, but with the arms of our heart, we can receive him and embrace him that way, can't we? And piety is the result of doing that. Um, how do we? express our gratitude to the Lord. We do so by aligning our hearts and lives with his word. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we so thank you and praise you, Father, for your goodness and your grace. And we thank you and praise you, Father, for, um, for just all of these things, Lord. Um, how do we summarize all these things in just a couple of words, Lord? Father, we thank you for coming in Christ Jesus and We thank you, O Father, for truly being our consolation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.